Hi everybody, Stefan Molyneux, hope you're doing well. I'm here with Ernst Rutz. He is a lawyer and the deputy CEO of Afra Forum, a non-governmental organization with the goal of protecting the rights of minorities. It's twitter.com forward slash Ernst Rutz, R-O-E-T-S. And the website is afraforum.co.za. Ernst, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thank you very much. And thank you for uh, speaking with me about this issue. Well, let's start with a big picture topic and maybe get your thoughts on this. One of the things that's both terrifying and frustrating to me, Ernst, is how this cycle of history, where there is a clear targeting of a group within a country by both state and non-state actors, where there is poisonous and hateful rhetoric being poured into the stratosphere, where there are increasing attacks, uh, either somewhat encouraged by public figures, or at least implicitly condoned through a lack of reaction. Uh, this kind of targeting, this kind of uh, cornering, uh, these kinds of um, actions against particular groups have occurred repetitively throughout history. And afterwards, everyone says, well, that was just terrible. We should make sure that never happens again. And then it seems we get drawn into the same cycle again and again and again. And that is what is so incredibly frustrating to me looking at the situation in South Africa, because if things boil to a head, it won't be like there wasn't decades of forewarning. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think what uh, what you're saying is very important and it's very true. And what makes it even worse is how we as an organization, for example, repeatedly have to respond to allegations that we are being intolerant. So the, in South Africa currently, the, the zeitgeist, to use the, the term, or, or the, the political climate is one in which the most influential political leaders stand up on public platforms and they would sing songs about killing white people. Um, they would make stat statements in parliament even and on, at political rallies and they would say things like all whites are criminals and all whites should be treated as criminals. And they would say if you are white, then you are a thief or if you are white, especially if, and you own land, then you are a, a land thief regardless of how you got that property, regardless of whether you bought that property. Um, and then if we as a, as a minority rights organization say this needs to stop, the hate speech needs to stop, uh, the incitement needs to stop, then we are accused of being intolerant. Um, so it really is frustrating. But I think the, the, the silver lining to, to this dark cloud is that I think now more than ever we are experiencing that there's much more international interest in what is happening in South Africa, and that is why I'm very grateful to be able to talk to you about our situation at the moment. It is, of course, it does to some degree go against a leftist identity politics narrative to point out that whites can sometimes be victims and blacks can sometimes be the aggressors. Because, of course, we have heard for so long that whites are always the evil oppressors and blacks are always the helpless Victims, and I must return, of course, to my Christian roots to explain this, that light and dark goes through the heart of every soul, and there is no group that is immune from the temptation to do evil, uh, just as there is no group who can never resist or can never accept the opportunity to do good. And this idea that things in South Africa are a lot more complex than people think, and that it does appear that the majority, uh, both in terms of demographics and in terms of political power, have set their sights on either the stealing from, the uh, stripping of rights of whites, and in particular the white farmers, it's hard to miss. But it goes against a kind of narrative that people have had set up in their minds for so long that it, in fact, is asks them to overcome a prejudice, which I don't think they're even aware that they have. Mm. Yes, uh, and um, it's really flabbergasting to listen to some of the views that people express. And, and oftentimes it's views that's expressed in the mainstream on 
the biggest radio stations in South Africa and TV networks with people would make comments such as, South Africa is a democracy and in a democracy you should not be allowed to say that. Um, so if we, for example, say that we disagree with land expropriation, people would say, well, we're a democracy, you can't say that, which is very ironic, of course. Uh, so I don't think people understand. I think that's part of the big problem in South Africa is that there's a complete lack of understanding of what the difference between democracy and majoritarianism is. So, so in South Africa, the view or the notion is that democracy means whoever gets the most, most votes can do whatever they want. Uh, they can strip people of their rights. And we've heard our former state president, for example, saying in parliament, uh, his, his exact words were, we are the majority and you are a minority. You have less rights because you are a minority. Absolutely, that is how democracy works. Those were his exact words. Um, and we've had many other similar statements from, from political leaders. But I think to, to get to your, to your question, what we experience in South Africa is, is a very, very um, aggressively pursued ideology of entitlement. So, and we see that within these you know, so-called liberation movements trying to run a country, as we've seen across the world, that that has never worked. So, so we have the ANC, for example, which is our ruling party, and then we have other smaller parties, such as the EFF, which is even more uh, radical, who would actively say to their members that whatever is wrong with you, whatever troubles you experience in your life, no matter what they are, those troubles are always the fault of someone else. Um, mm. And it's explicitly stated that it's the fault of white people. So if you are poor, it means that some white person has stolen something from you. Um, so there's no, uh, and at the same time, we have an education system that's in a disaster. Lit literally, more than 80% of our schools in South Africa are dysfunctional, according to, to data that's available in the public sphere. But there's not a need to fix the education system because to, to acknowledge that our education system is in shambles would be to acknowledge that part of the solution would, would be to focus inwards. But it's so aggressively pursued that whatever is wrong with you, it's always someone else's fault. And I think that's how we got to this point now where we have politicians openly singing songs about murdering minority communities. We have seen this script, as you know, Ernst, play out many times uh, over the last hundred or so years, in particular when a poisonous and toxic and divisive ideology like Marxism begins to gain the ascendancy in a political process. We, of course, uh, saw this with the kulaks uh, in, in Ukraine in the 1920s. We saw this with the uh, under Chairman Mao. Uh, this was seen in the killing fields of Cambodia, that there is this argument put forward that anyone who is successful is an exploiter. Anyone who has more than you only has it because they've stolen from you. And when you pound this toxic, virulent idea into people's minds, it stokes a very demonic force in their hearts. And then they feel that all actions, including torture, rape, and murder, and so on, may be justified in the just recompense of that which was taken. The idea that wealth is created, not always transferred, seems to be beyond the ken of this. And, and what's so frustrating is that we look at the, con the conflict between Marxism and Nazism that was erupting in Germany in the 1930s, and we say, well, Nazism has been discredited, and rightly so. An evil, toxic ideology of div divisiveness, of racism, of socialism, and so on. But Marxism is like this weird zombie that continues to march across the intellectual landscape, consuming cultures, countries, uh, entire peoples. And it seems almost impossible for people to say, well, they have a Marxist ideology. That is something that must be strongly opposed because of the disasters it always produces. Yeah, it's, it's exactly the case. And it, it's, it's quite 
strange to listen how people argue this. Um, and, and, you know, I, I'm sure you've heard it a lot and we hear it regularly in South Africa. Uh, when we talk about this policy, for example, about expropriation of people's property without compensating them, and we would point out and say, well, that was tried repeatedly. It was tried in the Soviet Union. It was tried in communist China. It was tried in Venezuela, in Zimbabwe, and all of these countries. And then people would say, yes, but how will we know if it would work here if we don't ever if we don't even try it? So that this thing about real communism has never been tried. I mean, we get this regularly, um, and it's it's really strange. Um, as you've said, I think Nazism was an evil ideology, um, and there are probably different ways in which you can measure how evil an ideology is. But if uh, if uh, death count is one, then uh, you can certainly say that communism is much worse. And we have at the moment in South Africa, or recently, for example, there was a, a push by the South African government. Um, I'm not sure if they're still pursuing it, but it was in the news about a year ago that they wanted to rename one of the big streets in Pretoria, which is our capital city, to Mao Tung. Now, Mao Tung is um, pro probably the most evil person ever to have been on this earth. Um, and we have people making comments within our ruling party who would say that they are inspired, uh, the words they use, by the policies of Robert Mugabe, and they are ex ins inspired by Hugo Chavez, they are inspired by Fidel Castro, they are inspired by Joseph Stalin. So it's literally, and what we see now in South Africa is, let's the, the disingenuousness or the dishonesty about this whole policy is what we see our government doing is they are aggressively trying to implement the policies that has led to the world's worst economies. Uh, and you can go down the list from the bottom, basically. You can look at all of those policies. That's what we are trying, or what they want to do in South Africa. And then the argument is, yes, but how will we know if it'll work if we don't even try it? Um, it's it's really flabbergasting. And if you if you disagree with this, then you are labeled a reactionary or a racist, or uh, you know, all sorts of terms, or intolerant, and and it's it's really frustrating to to see what's happening in South Africa. And there's nobody who had had a sane moral bone in their body, Ernst, who would say, "Well, you see, national socialism, that was in Germany, and it was terrible. But if we try it in Brazil, maybe it'll work." Just like that, that ideology has been discredited, and it. I don't know how many people have to die. I don't know how yep. many countries have to get ruined. I don't know how many economies have to be flushed down the toilet in order yep. for this toxic ideology to finally be rejected by mankind. And, of course, it is, has been my goal as a public intellectual for many, many years to work as hard as I can to discredit the toxicity of this ideology because it is as clear as sunrise. It is as clear as throwing a rock off a cliff and knowing which way it's going to go, which is down exactly what happens. If this land appropriation is going to occur, we've seen this happen before in places like Zimbabwe, and the script is always the same. Mm. Yeah, well, uh, I think we can add to that. The, the ANC, which is the ruling party in South Africa, quite ironically say that their ideology is not only socialism, it's socialism and nationalism. So national socialism, that's basically what they say their policy is or their ideology is. Um, and I think by that same logic, uh, we, we, if the argument is yes, but real socialism or real communism has never been tried, we might as well say yes, but real apartheid has never been tried. So let's give it another go. Or real real slavery has never, like, I mean, you, you couldn't, you could take any horrible ideology and, yeah. and say that, well, if we photocopy it this time, we're going to get a completely different picture. Now, another thing that's frustrating, Ernst, for me, and I'm sure for you as well, is this has all been openly stated ahead of time. 
this, um, we're going to change things slowly and persistently so that the population that we're targeting doesn't react too strongly, that does that boiling frog submission to the gradual increase in temperature. This has been a multi-decade plan laid out in advance, published, publicized, available for people to read. This is not coming out of nowhere. Yes, exactly. That, and that's very important what you're saying is the boiling frog uh, metaphor was something that was used by our current president, Cyril uh, Ramaphosa, in the, in the ni- early 1990s during the negotiations for a new South Africa, for the new constitution. He was the chief negotiator of the ANC back then. He's now the state president. And he was asked by one of the opposition parties uh, who were in many ways agreeing with the ANC that what are their plans to deal with white people in South Africa? And then he used the boiling frog metaphor to say, listen, we can't just take everything all at once. But as you said, also, it's written down. So I think the more important reference point here is the ANC's own policy documents. So one of the interesting things about our ruling party in South Africa is they put a lot of effort into writing their ideas down and publishing it. So they have what they call their strategy and tactics documents. And one of the things they describe, some ANC leaders have even described it as their religion, is what they call the National Democratic Revolution. And what that means is, is basically, uh, and, and it's written, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not even paraphrasing, I'm basically quoting from their own documents now. During the early 1990s, as we know, before uh, the fall of the, the Berlin Wall, the ANC was very much aligned with the Soviet Union. They were funded by the Soviet Union. Uh, they were sent to Vietnam to learn uh, from Ho Chi Minh and to learn about how they, they fought in, uh, against the Americans. And they were taught this so-called people's war strategy that was developed by Mao Zedong which was basically a strategy that boiled down to targeting your rivals, not your real enemies. So they weren't really fighting against apartheid. They were fighting against competitor black organizations, uh, such as the Black Consciousness Movement, Azapu, and so forth. And they really targeted them, and and 20,000 people were killed as a result of that. But what the ANC then, then did during the early 1990s was brilliant from a strategic perspective. They said that they shouldn't be that outspoken about their communist um, ideology. They should rather portray themselves as being um, in favor of freedom and, and so forth. And um, and eventually they did so. And then what the ANC has written after they they after that negotiations, after the so-called New South Africa began, when in, in 1996 or seven, I think, in the strategy and tactics document, they said, "Well, now we have the power." Now we have achieved the state, uh, we have achieved a victory, and they've described it as a beachhead. So think of D-Day. It was a temporary victory. They had all these all these um, agreements with, with the National Party, who was the former government. And now that they've achieved state power, now that's their words, they should use the state mechanisms to further the revolution. And that's why we hear in South Africa people talking about a second transition, which means that now that they do control the state, now we need to de- move this country into a socialist state. Right. And uh, this kind of incrementalism, according to, dem- to democratic principles, was, of course, the national socialist agenda in Germany, just as it was, uh, of course, the communists uh, who initially were going to try and gain power through, quote, peaceful means in, in Russia in 1917. This is a, an old and tried revolutionary a tactic, and of course, one of the reasons why they want to go so delicately is that um, the world as a whole, of course, gives the South African government and the ANC as the um, the inheritor, the, the the progeny of the sainted Mandela, quite a pass, as well as, of course, at least from America alone, hundreds of millions of dollars a year 
in foreign aid. And that, to me, is an astonishing thing. One of the reasons I think why it's moving so slowly is not so much that they don't want to alarm the white population, which seemed to me, Ernst, entirely alarmed already, but because they don't want to provoke a reaction or any judgment from the world community in terms of investment, in terms of foreign aid, or just in terms of negative publicity. And I think that shows where the vulnerable spot can be, which is one of the reasons why I think these conversations are so important. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%, uh, especially since the ANC is seen in the world as the party of Nelson Mandela. Um, I was in at the United Nations in New York recently, and if you go to the bookstore there, I counted. There were more books about Nelson Mandela uh, in the UN's uh, bookstore in New York than all the other uh, state leaders, state presidents combined. Um, and so we know the United Nations in particular is very proud of the new South Africa about the, the so-called miracle that happened in 1994. And the ANC has, has achieved a very big international wind of approval. So the ANC is sort of the, the sweethearts or the darlings of the world in terms of uh, the fact that there was a, what is described as a non-violent revolution, although there actually was a lot of violence in South Africa. But, um, and I think this is the, I think strategically, I think we, we, something that we need to zoom in on is the fact that the ANC, and we've seen that, we've personally experienced that at AfriForum, that, that the ANC, our, our government is very, very sensitive to, to political scrutiny abroad. Uh, recently, we saw the uh, Minister of Home Affairs in Australia, Peter Dutton, make a comment about white farmers who are being targeted in South Africa and our ruling party was furious about that. Uh, various cabinet ministers publicly attacked the Australian government for saying so, and I think that this—I think this is something that that we need to we need to focus on—is to make sure that the international community becomes aware about what is really happening in South Africa, who is the ANC really, and to get people to to speak out about it as as you are doing at this moment. Let's. Let me play devil's advocate position for a moment, Ernst, and make the case, which I've seen, of course, uh, many times uh, in, in comments, in articles, in interviews, and so on, where the blacks, and I, I don't want to make this big amorphous group called the blacks. I mean, there's many, many different tribes, eight official languages, many other languages, and so on. So, But in general, there is this perspective from, from the blacks that uh, the, the whites came and stole the land and were just taking it back. The whites came and colonized and brutalized and raped and, and murdered and, and, and we're just taking it back. We're trying to protect ourselves from these evil colonial oppressors. What is the response that you would have to these kinds of accusations? Yeah, thank you. We're actually busy making a documentary film exactly about that, uh, which will be published probably in a month or, or maybe three months or so. The, the question is, how did white people get land in South Africa? And the answer is there were three different ways in which white people got land. Uh, the first uh, is uh, empty land. And I know that's controversial, but it's very well documented. Uh, I'm sure we can't go into history in too much detail, but I can maybe reference the Mufekane was a massive, I'm sure people abroad know of Shaka Zulu. He started you you can go into a little bit more detail. This is a, a, a an armchair show. We don't mind. We're not afraid of details here. We've got no commercial breaks and, and just whatever you want to get out. This is a good forum to do it. Okay, well, let me, let me then give a bit of context. So, um, 1652, uh, the Dutch settled in Cape Town, uh, what is today known as Cape Town, and it was supposed to be a, a halfway house for people traveling around Africa so that they can stop there and get refreshments and so forth. Um, 
Long story uh, short is they, they uh, grew, the population grew. The intention wasn't to settle there permanently. Eventually, it was um, annexed by uh, or colonized by, by the British. And by that time, the local community did not see themselves as uh, Europeans anymore. They saw themselves as Afrikaners, which is also known as Boers in, in the rest of the world. And so there was friction, especially between the Boers and the British uh, in, in what is today known as Cape Town. And eventually they, just, they decided to move, the Boers, to move deeper into uh, South Africa. And just to put this in context, sorry to interrupt, Ernst, just to put this in context, particularly for my American or our American listeners and viewers, the Boers have been in South Africa, in many cases, longer than the whites have been in America. And so just saying, well, just leave, well, that's like saying all to the whites in America, well, just leave, because it's not your country. And this becomes progressively difficult to untangle historically, but I just wanted to put that in context. Yeah, yeah, thank you. So... um, Eventually, the Boers started moving into South Africa, but more or less the same times, I think slightly before, uh, remember, as you said, we have 11 official languages in South Africa, so we have, we have many different black tribes. We have Khorsas and Zulus and Sutus and, um, and a whole variety of, of them. But more or less the same time, uh, most of them slightly before 1652 or before that, uh, were moving down from what is today known as Cameroon, uh, Central Africa. They were moving down, migrating down, and actually... The, the indigenous people in South Africa were the Khoisan, uh, or the Bushmen, as they are known. I'm sure many people have seen the gods must be crazy. So those are the original inhabitants of South Africa. And they were actually driven out of uh, their land uh, by black tribes. And so, but just before the Great Track happened, uh, that was the reign of Shaka Zulu. Shaka Zulu died about 10 or 20 years before the Great Track. And he had this massive expansion of the Zulu Empire campaign. And that sparked wars over the entire country, which is known as the Mifekane or the Difekane. And the Mifekane or Difekane basically meant that black tribes had a massive war um, among each other. There were tribes fleeing from the Zulu uh, Empire that was expanding. And about there are different estimates, but most estimates are between one and two million people died as a result thereof. So when the Great Track happened, there were also other cases. Uh, let me give you another example. Uh, uh, the case of, I think, Nomkwase, is it, it's called, in the Kosa community, where a young Kosa girl, uh, I think she was the daughter of the chief, if I recall, had a dream about, they were already aware of what was happening with England and uh, of, of the British uh, involvement in South Africa. And she had a dream about Russia, and somewhere they heard about Russia, and um, that they need to burn or, or slaughter their livestock and burn their crops. And that would mean that the Russians would come and save them. And so they've done that. And then uh, 10 or 20,000 Kosa people died as a result thereof. So if you read the diaries of some of the uh, great track, the Boer leaders who were moving into South Africa, you will see, you will see there were conflicts between whites and blacks. But there were also notes about how they moved into areas and it was just empty and there were skeletons everywhere and there were no one seen, uh, in, uh, no one in sight. Um, and there were areas that were simply uninhabitable because in South Africa you need to, South Africa is actually a very dry country. Um, so uh, there were some estimates saying that you can only survive on about 30% of South Africa's surface if you can't dig boreholes. So the point that I'm trying to make, that's the first point, is, is there were massive parts of South Africa that was empty. The second reason was um, negotiations. So there were very well-known cases. There were literally dozens of cases where food trackers, as they were known, I'm using the word food trackers, which was what the Boers were called when they moved into uh, what is known as South Africa today. Uh, There were literally dozens of negotiations between the Boers and um, black tribes, such as the Zulu, uh, 
very, almost all, all of those tribes. The most, uh, the best known case is the case of Pitre Tif and Chief Dengan. Now, Chief Dengan was king of the Zulus. He was uh, King Shaka's brother. He killed King Shaka and he became the, the chief. And Pitre Tif was one of the Boer leaders. So um, Pitre Tif negotiated with Chief Dengan for a big piece of land, uh, which is in KwaZulu-Natal, as it is known today. And the, the, there was a treaty signed between them that Retief had to go and get some cattle that was stolen by uh, Sikonyela and give those cattle back to Dengan. And they, they signed a treaty. The treaty is in writing that if they do that, then they can get this massive piece of land. And so they they went, they got the cattle, they went back to Dengan, and then uh, Piet Retief and all of his men, I think it was 200 men, if I recall, were all slaughtered. Um, so they were all killed, but the treaty was signed. So there were many such cases. Well, I mean, cases. Uh, it's uh, not not wildly off the, the sort of radar of things, something like the Louisiana Purchase or the Purchase of Manhattan and so on. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, I, I can't go into those details too much, but, but it's more or less along the same lines. Um, so there were many such cases where land was bought. Um, there were even cases, as I, I spoke about the empty lands, um, when the Voortrekkers eventually, or the Boers eventually established the Boer Republics of the Free State, Free State and Transvaal, which later became uh, combined into South Africa, uh, some black tribes came to them and said, well, this used to be our land before the Mifikani, and that land was given back to them. Um, there were many such cases as well, and it's documented. So that's the second uh, uh, way in which they got land. And the third one is probably the most controversial, and that's by conquest. Um, and that's very controversial because that's that's the argument that, you know, white stole black people's land. But I think we need to see that within a bigger historical context. And that is that it was common practice among the different black tribes in South Africa that you could get land by way of conquest. That's why the Bushmen or the Khoisan now live in the desert. The few of them who are left, they used to live in the Drakensbergs. They used to live all over South Africa. They're now living the, in the desert because the, their original land was, they were driven off. So uh, conquest is also, it's the most it's, controversial. It's also known as human history as a whole. Yeah. Up until a it's, very, very small slice of the modern era when Christianity helped develop ideas such as universal rights, property rights, and, and subjugation and equality under the law, that was human history. That was human history as a whole. And to single out one group, one race, one tribe as the only progenitor of evil in a constant jostling for land and resources that characterize all of human history, just kind of racist, in my humble opinion. But sorry, go ahead. Yeah, that's exactly the point. And even during this great track, uh, there were still black tribes who had wars against against each other um, and so forth. But in South Africa, uh, the notion or the mainstream notion is at least that if black tribes have wars against each other and they take each other's land, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you are white and you take someone's land, uh, then you are a land thief. And uh, also then the argument, the, the counter argument to that would be yes, but but um, white people, it wasn't white people's land in the first place uh, because they came here by boat. So what that argument basically boils down to is to say that if you arrive on someone else's land by foot, you have a better right to claim it than if you arrive by boat. That's basically what the argument is in South Africa. Because white people came by boat into uh, what is today known as Cape Town. Black people crossed the Limpopo River coming from Cameroon, the Great Lakes, the Malawi Lake and so forth. They came down into the northern parts of South Africa. Um, and the only there's really only one group in South Africa who can legitimately claim that they were the first inhabitants, and that's the Khoisan people or the Bushman people. It's almost like a, some, a parody of, of Animal Farm. You know, like two legs good, 
to or is bad. And, and I don't think anyone would say that if you were, say, an immigrant into America, uh, I guess they would all have to come by boat. But if you were, let's say, an immigrant into Europe, that you didn't have any property rights because you crossed the Mediterranean uh, rather than some other methodology, uh, that would be kind of kind of crazy. All right. So, yeah, there was um, the treaties, there was empty land, and then there was, of course, this um, the wars and so on. But, of course, I think everyone can unpack what's actually going on with the demand for uh, recompensation and so on for this kind of stuff. It's just that, well, the whites have added the most value to the land, and they're the current owners. Uh, therefore, they're the ones you want to target. I mean, it's the old thing, like, why do you rob banks? Well, that's where the money is. And it's, why do you want white people's land? It's because that's where the value is currently uh, in most of South Africa. Yeah, exactly. I just want to add to the African and European reference you made. Um, so a question I've been asking repeatedly in, in media interviews in South Africa, and no one has been prepared to even answer that, is people would say, yes, but we as white people need to remember that Africa is black people's continent. Therefore, white, when white people come to Africa, they are visitors here. And what a can of worms to open when it comes to Europe, right? <laughs> that's exactly the point. That's exactly the point. So the, the next question is, Okay, well, if that's your view, are you saying that white people in Europe can say to black people who are, who are uh, fleeing there that Europe is white people's continent, you're not welcome here? Because uh, that would be racist. And then well, the no, I, I would go even further, Ernst, because according to that logic, uh, non-whites who've been in Europe for hundreds of years, who speak yeah, exactly. perfect English, who, who are part of the culture, who, who contribute, they must be kicked out according to this theory it's not just people coming in, it's people who've been there indigenously for hundreds of years must also be kicked out, and that is, of course, wrong, and it would be the initiation of the use of force, it would be racist. And so this argument doesn't translate, of course, and uh, it's a foundational hypocrisy that people don't really want to address. Yeah, that's definitely the case. And, and I think that's, the, that's part of the problem, is there are so many inconsistencies and so many... Um, lies about what's currently happening in South Africa. I mean, we can go down the list, but let me, let me give you another example is we have the, the state president now, Cyril um, Ramaphosa, going to the World Economic Forum, encouraging the international community to come to, to come and invest in South Africa. And you <laughs> would say to them that your investments are safe with us. Please, please deposit money into the bank I wish to rob, because that way there's more for me to steal. That's exactly the point. And we have cabinet ministers going even further, saying please come and invest in agriculture in South Africa. While there's a motion that was already uh, accepted, uh, adopted in our parliament, that that land is going to be expropriated without, without compensation. So that's the basis of a sound investment, is the knowledge that your investment is safe, that your property will be protected. Um, and now, um, so the, it's a two-phase uh, uh, hypocrisy. So they would say to the international community, come and invest, your investments are safe. And within South Africa, they would say, um, you know, we're going to take property and we're not even going to pay you for that. So let's talk about one of the big hot button issues. Um, I myself have visited South Africa twice and, and remember coming away, certainly the second time, with a more nuanced and complicated understanding of the situation. And so let's talk about apartheid, which, of course, is considered to be uh, a lot of the bitter crop that is growing up into the current discontent, you know, like uh, you whites came and you, you're racist and, and segregationist and you reap what you sow and blow back and karma and all of this. Is this the cycle of violence is going to be stopped by that kind of justification? But let's talk about apartheid. And, you know, I was trying to do some research before talking to you and I just kept running into the usual 
very yeah. leftist, very, well, it was just racist and evil and so on. Yes, it was racist. Yes, it was immoral. But if you look at the 70,000 whites who've been murdered since the end of apartheid, if you look at the farm murders, if you look at the squatter camps that the whites are being forced into, it's hard to say there was absolutely no reason for it and whites had nothing to fear from the end of apartheid. So let's talk a little bit about how it came about, what it was, and what the fears were around changing that system. Yeah, uh, that's a very important question. And, and also in terms of the whole issue of apartheid, the problem in South Africa is, is, or part of the problem is that there's, firstly, there's broad agreement that apartheid was wrong. I think there are very, very, very few people, less than, I would say less than 1% within the white community, which is already a very small minority, who really think that we need to go back to that system. I mean, there's a lot of frustration with the current system, but I think the overwhelming view is the previous system and the current system are wrong. They are not, they're not working. But because there's such broad condemnation, I think, well, before I make this point, let's just give context. I think part of the thing is we have this poly or this ideology of entitlement and an ideology of victimhood, which is effectively means that portraying South Africa's history as bad as possible is incentivized for the South African government because the more the worse things were, the the more uh, their claim would be to implement things such as black economic empowerment. So we would never you never hear someone or or very rarely hear someone within the ruling party say you know what maybe we are starting to exaggerate about what happened in South Africa's history, and that is actually the reality. And, I'm sorry, sorry to interrupt, but also it's an, yeah. it's an old tried and true technique that when your economic system isn't working, you come up you with a scapegoat, which yeah. was the case in Germany uh, and it's been the case uh, with the counter-revolutionaries under Stalin. When your economic system isn't working, you point at whoever has some success and you say, those, are the re those people are the reason you're poor, those people are the reason things aren't working, and if we just go and kill them or drive them away or take their stuff, everything will be a paradise. And it's a, a classic kind of uh, redirect of the uh, legitimate anger of people who aren't successful under a terrible system. Yeah, and also the further we move away from apartheid in South Africa, the more we are reminded of it. We hear uh, people in the government speaking more about apartheid now than they did 10 years ago. But so what's happened, it's almost created this void. Uh, there's no one who really wants to defend apartheid. So what's happening now is it's a carte blanche. People can say whatever they want about apartheid, and there's no one there to, to sort of point them out. So now we have people saying apartheid was a policy of genocide. We have people saying that apartheid was a policy of slavery. We have all these comments, and we have recently started saying to people, listen, if we want to, we should criticize our history, but we should just make sure that we are factual. And you cannot say apartheid was a policy of genocide because within the first decade of apartheid, the black population doubled, and within the next decade, they doubled again. Um, and of course, as you can expect, we are, you, you would then be accused of being an apartheid apologist or an apartheid denialist. So, so that's currently the, the frustration in South Africa. It's just not correct to say genocide, of course, the, the purposeful direct or indirect elimination of an entire cultural, ethnic or racial group. And if the population is swelling enormously under particular policies, then what did it go from 2 million to 16 million over the course of apartheid for blacks? Uh, that is... Well, that's the exact opposite of if the numbers went the other way, you'd have a case. But if they're going this way, you can call it immoral and you can call it segregationist, you can call it racist. These would all be accurate terms. But to call it genocide is an insult to groups who are actually who actually have been genocided in history. Exactly. And, and there has been people, I think it's really offensive to, as you said, to people, to the Tutsis in Rwanda and people who really experience genocide to try to say that what happened to them or what happened in South Africa is equal to what happened there. Um, you, you don't want to hijack the Jewish Holocaust or the Holocaust under the Nazis for your own political agenda. That's a horrifying thing to do. 
Well, that's exactly what's happening in South Africa. But I think maybe to answer your previous question, just to give a bit of context, and I'm sure I would again be accused of being an apartheid denialist or whatever uh, for saying this, but, but we need to, I think all legitimate historians in the world would agree to this, is you need to evaluate history within a historic context. It's easy to stand back today and to look at what happened 100 years ago within our current uh, moral framework and, and criticize, and yes, we should do that, but uh, we should just have a bit of context. And I think part of the context as to how this system developed, uh, this apartheid system, was South Africa is a fairly big country. Of course, it's very small in comparison to the U.S., but in, in comparison to other countries, it's, it's fairly big. And it's a very diverse country. So the argument was, the argument that led to this system was that South Africa should not see itself as a country in itself, but more as something similar to Europe. And that different tribes or different communities should have their own piece of land where they can govern themselves. Um, and that's how the system of what they called separate development developed. So they would say, well, this is a piece of land for the, the Zulu community. The Zulus are going to have their land here. The Sutus are going to live there. The Afrikaners are going to live here and so forth. And of course, that then, that's the difference between what is known as, as grand apartheid and small apartheid. So that was sort of grand apartheid. And over time, that started, of course, there were racist sentiments as well. But over time, that started developing into small apartheid, where people would, up, would put up signs on benches or beaches to say, if you want to sit on this bench, you have to be black. And if you, and if you want to sit on this bench, you have to be white. And I think it became just it just became impossible to really defend that system morally. And I think what the the apartheid was also a fairly easy target in the sense that the Afrikaners who, who ran who governed the country back then put a lot of effort into codifying everything. They they put everything into state law. So it wasn't just practices. So they would say, well, uh, these are the different communities. So let's put, make a law. Let's write a law. And that's how the the Natives Land Act came into into force, and all the um, um, all these different pieces of legislation that that were applied. So, uh, was it was it wrong? Of course, it was wrong. Uh, should we go back there? Of course, we shouldn't go back there. But we should be historically accurate, and we should be honest when when we evaluate South Africa's history. And and I think part of the reason why we are in this problem that we are now in South Africa, and maybe that's a lesson uh, for people in the U.S. And, and other countries to learn as well is we've reached this point now where uh, race relations is at an all-time low, largely because of the fact that we are not honest about our history. We should criticize our history, we should be critical about it, but we should just ensure that we remain factual in our analysis about what happened in South Africa. And added to that, when people are dishonest or when people fabricate their own history, those people should be pointed out without fear of being labeled a so-called apartheid apologist, because that's what's happening in South Africa. But I think we need to put much more effort into ensuring that we are honest about our history. And I, I appreciate uh, the sensitivity in which you are treating, obviously, a very difficult subject. And I just, I invite people to look into it. It was a state solution to a complicated uh, social and, and ethnic problem. Like all state solutions, it had its brutalities, and it, to me, is fundamentally wrong as a whole. We should have a separation of race and state and not have any laws that prefer or, or deny opportunities to anyone of any race. But that colorblind legal system remains a little bit of a mirage in, in the world as a whole. That's my particular perspective. And another thing, too, is that um, when you have additional resources – in your uh, community, and there was, of course, a growth in a huge growth in wealth uh, in South Africa in the uh, after the Second World War, in particular. 
And so one of the things that you can do as a community is you can say, okay, we have more wealth. So that means we, we can either save, we can invest, we can become entrepreneurs, we can upgrade our education, or we can just have a lot of more kids. And this challenge as well that the black community, I mean, obviously not as any kind of collective decision, said, okay, well, we're just going to have a lot more kids. And that is going to be a challenge in terms of maintaining the growth of uh, economic growth within a community. And that is not, I don't know, it's hard to blame the Boers for that as a whole. And uh, that may be cultural, that may be, I don't know where that would come from. But that's one thing that happened, that the population grew rather than wealth uh, grew. And uh, that is uh, part of the legacy that needs to be dealt with. And of course, my particular goal is always to increase freedom and to decrease state intervention in these affairs. But it does seem to be like a ring of power that people have a very hard time stepping back from. Yeah, I think um, just to, to add to your first comment there, I think part of the irony is that probably the biggest criticism of apartheid is something that our government would not acknowledge because they are trying to do the exact same thing. And that is aggressively state-driven social engineering. Uh, I think that's that was the main flaw. So there were these views, and, and that was the notion uh, at the time, that the different tribes, different nations wanted their own land, but it was it was enforced by the state. And eventually it boiled down to a situation where people were physically or forcefully removed uh, from some areas. They said, well, unfortunately, where you live now, and it happened to white and black people, the notion is that it only happened to black people, but it happened to white people as well where they would say, well, sorry, you white farmers, you live in an area that's been designated to the black people, so you have to, we're going to forcefully remove you. You have to move. So uh, that's, part, that's the biggest part of the problem. And, and the irony is that the, the current South African government is trying to do exactly the same. So, so they would not acknowledge that the problem with, with apartheid was that it was an, a state-driven case of social engineering because that's what they are trying to do. And they, they're doing it with various laws. We've got all these black economic empowerment policies and, and so forth. Um, so once again, that, it comes back to the disingenuity about, about South Africa's history. So let's talk a little bit about the flashpoint I think that a lot of people are concerned about in, in, in South Africa. One of the things that a primarily urban population doesn't really understand is the connection that people have with the land. So, you know, if you grew up in a city, you probably moved around a little bit. You say, okay, well, I got to move from the city to the suburbs or maybe to another town. And it doesn't seem like that big a deal. But uh, people who farmed the land for 10 generations or more, people uh, who have family members buried on the land, people who have that kind of rooted connection to the land, whew, I'm telling you, well, I don't have to tell you, I'm sure, they're not going to give it up uh, peacefully. And, uh, of course, the, the South African government is saying, don't worry, it'll be peaceful, as if things that the government does is ever peaceful. I mean, it is the monopoly of violence, as you've pointed out. So what is the flashpoint that might occur? Because the, the, the farm murders are one thing, but when the government shows up with a writ and a deed and a bunch of guys with guns, uh, that, of course, is the big concern about where things go from there. Yeah, exactly. I mean, even the, the word boer in Afrikaans, the word boer, as we know in Afrikaans, means farmer. So Afrikaners as a community have been, they've they've become known as the boers because it's a community that is known for being farmers. So, and it's generally, I'm not just saying this, you can go on international platforms and you would, you would hear people across the world saying the, the Afrikaners or the white people in South Africa are among the best farmers in the world in terms of the land they have and the ability to to farm and to 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 uh, create uh, agricultural products from from that uh, and and high quality products. So 
it's really ingrained in in um, in, in us as a community. I come from a from an agricultural community myself, um, and yes, what you said is exactly the case. There have been people. There are people who can trace their their land back to to when it was bought, ironically and very importantly, um, five or ten generations ago. Uh, that's exactly the case with the piece of land uh, or a farm that that's uh, the farm that where I grew up. It was you can trace it back to actually when it was bought initially. And now, of course, the argument is, is it was stolen land. So it was you buy something and then it has to be taken from you without compensation because it's stolen, allegedly. But the argument in South Africa, and that's what we hear regularly, and that's very ironic and, and tragic at the same time, is people would say, yes, we are inspired by what happened in Zimbabwe, but we disagreed. We disagree with the fact that there was violence. So now, don't worry, white people, we are going to take your, your property but or, or it's sometimes I would say, no, it's not about white people, it's about property. But if you read the motion and if you listen to what they argue in parliament, it's clearly about white people. So they would say, don't worry, we are going to take your property, but we're not going to do it in the same way as it was done in Zimbabwe. Well, it's not up to the South African government to determine whether it would be violent, uh, violent or not, because the question of whether there would be violence means, or if they say there wouldn't be violence, what they actually say is, we're going to take your property and you are not going to resist. And I personally know people who, who as I said, they, they've had, they've been on that farm for generations. I personally know people who have said to me they would rather die on their farms than to be forced, forcefully removed, ironically, again, uh, an apartheid term, forcefully removed to go and live in a city. And so it's, it's just a fact, uh, as me and you are speaking now, it is a fact that if that happens, there will be people who will resist. And I think the situation in South Africa, I'm not trying to be a doom prophet. But if it comes to that point, um, I'm sure the situation would, would might, or might or has the potential to be even worse than what happened in Zimbabwe. Um, so let, and we, we've referenced Zimbabwe a little bit here. Could you step people through the sequence that happened in Zimbabwe and how you feel it applies to South Africa at the moment? Yes. Well, maybe I should start by saying there are some some clips on, on, uh, on the internet, on YouTube, about how people responded when Robert Mugabe became president of Zimbabwe. And it's, it's very sad to look at it. Uh, so there would be people dancing in the street and they would say, well, Mugabe is going to fix this country and uh, there's not going to be corruption. And he's, you know, people were describing this ultimate leader who's coming to power. And then, and he wasn't in power for a while. And then in 2003, if I recall, they really aggressively started with this land grabs policy. So he, he kept he also kept blaming white people for everything that was wrong in the country. And eventually there were so few white people left that he had to become more and more aggressive in his, his blame shifting and his scapegoating. And then the land grab started. So people would run, uh, some of his party members would run to farms with pangas or guns or whatever, and they would f forcefully chase people off and they would kill people. And some people were tortured and they were just, or some people were hacked to death um, and had their fingers broken and their bones broken and their skulls crushed and so forth. Um, and people was, were forcefully removed. And what happened then, I think the most important part of the story is what happened to those farms afterwards. And the reality is those farms were not given to the people. Those farms were given to friends uh, of the state president and he's loyalist. So the more loyal you were to the state president, the bigger your chances are of getting a farm. Uh, so that's actually what happened, and we know there were. So it was, I think, the biggest economic crash in history. Well, as um, it turns out, farms are not like geysers. 
or volcanoes. They don't just erupt food. It's a lot of careful planning and cultivation. It takes high intelligence, consistency, discipline, knowledge, experience to wrestle food out of African soil. So they yeah. oh look, there's these farms make millions of rand a year or millions of dollars a year, or, and then so if we take it over, it's just going to magic. No, it, it, it you just grab things. It doesn't the, the the value doesn't transfer even if the property does. Yeah, that's very important. Agriculture is a science. It's not just something that you know how to do, and that's part of the notion that we hear in South Africa. Uh, I mean, in, in many of our, of our farms in South Africa, the uh, people working on the farms would be black. So the argument is then made, oh, you know what, those farmers, they're sitting in their air-conditioned offices all day, and it's actually black people who are doing all the work. So black people know how to farm better than white people, uh, than white farmers. And people who say that clearly do not understand how agriculture, what agriculture is. Agri running a commercial farm, and I think that's another point, is there's a difference between commercial farming and subsistence farming, which is, I think, an important differentiation. But running a commercial farm is running a business. So you need to sit in the office. You need to work because uh, you, you're working with markets. You're working with complicated irrigation systems. You're working with negotiations. You're working with uh, imports and outports and those type of things. And so if people say, we work in the fields, therefore we know how to farm, what they are actually saying is we know how to be subsistence farmers. And yes, if we take the commercial farms and we, we change them into subsistence farms, it might be good for a few people on ground level, although we've seen that even that doesn't work based on what, what's happened in South Africa so far based on the available data. But the fact of the matter is South Africa is not going to be exporting food anymore. South Africa would be importing. We, we're already near the point we are, where we are importing more than we are exporting, despite the fact that we are a, a, supposed to be a country that should be very strong in agriculture. But there's not an understanding of how agriculture works in South Africa. Well, if you want cities... You can't have subsistence farms because they're not able to export, let alone overseas. They're not able to export to other countries or to the cities that are 10 miles down the road sometimes. So if you want to have an urban culture, and that's to me quite fascinating, and you've talked about this data before, Ernst, that there is a process by which people who feel that their lands or who have evidence or who believe that their lands were stolen by the Boers or by other white people in the past, they can go to the government, they can say, here's my claim, here's why the vast majority of these have already been adjudicated. But the people who do it, they don't want the land. They don't want to go and be farmers. They don't want to go and do that kind of backbreaking work. Uh, what do they want? You've, you've, you've talked about this before. They, yeah, they want to live in cities. But let me, let me just explain something uh, to give context before I respond to that. So I think there are three terms that we need to uh, differentiate between. Those, those three are used in South Africa as if it means the same thing, but it's actually different. So the first one is restitution, restitution or land restitution. And the word restitution means that you need to correct something, something, some mistake happened and that has to be fixed. And there, we've had a process of land restitution it was, and it was actually a very successful process. Uh, if, if the measure of cases that have been filed and cases that have been dealt with effectively uh, is, a, is a determining factor. Uh, so restitution, the restitution process is to say, Someone can go to the government, as you have said, and say, well, listen, my grandfather or great-grandfather or my tribe used to live on this land and we were chased off. And you have to prove it in some way. You can't just make a you know, claim into the void. And then you can, that farm can be given back. So then, of course, there would be compensation because the person who lives there you know, wasn't the one who took the property in the first place. Um, but that process has been dealt with. There's been a few hundred thousand claims and more than 90% of them have been dealt with and have been finished. But the frustrating thing that came out of that for the South African government 
was the fact that 93% of the people who actually filed land claims came at the end of the process and said, well, no, we don't really want the land. Actually, we would rather have money than land. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is redistribution of land. Now, redistribution is much worse than that. Re restitution can be supported in principle. Redistribution is to say, we're going to look at the color of your skin, and the color of your skin will determine if you are a legitimate landowner. And then there's the representativity argument, which is basically an equality of outcomes argument. If there's not equality of outcomes, then there's oppression. And so more a bigger percentage, or let's put it differently, white farmers are a bigger component of the agricultural community than they are of the South African population. And therefore, the argument is, well, that means that there's some form of oppression. So we're going to take white people's land and give it to black people. So that's redistribution. And we have said it before, you can make a strong argument that redistribution boils down to a crime against humanity. If you say, based on the color of your skin, you're not allowed to be a landowner. But what the South African government is busy with at the moment is not even redistribution. It's actually worse. They are busy with the policy of nationalization. Mm. because, And that's one of the other things where they are lying to their own supporters. So they would say, we're going to give you the land back. So there's actually two lies in that. So giving the land back as if any white person who owns land has, sto has, land has stolen. That, that's the first problem. The second problem is they're not going to give the land to their supporters. The policy is that the land must go to the state. It must be state-owned land because the state, and that comes back to the animal farm or the 1984 reference, the state always knows better. And they would say that. They would say that the state knows better than the people. So the state must be the custodian and we are going to own it. And then we can decide, we can plan, we can have some central planning system and we can decide who, who can live where and what they can do on that property. That's nationalization. And again, as we have pointed out, that's what they tried in communist China and in the Soviet Union and in all of those countries. And, and the results are there for all to see. Well, and as I've talked about in, in other shows, Ernst, the population growth in South Africa is largely a function of Boer technology, Boer expertise, uh, Boer work ethic, and so on. And if the land is transferred from the Boers and given to political cronies, I'm sure there are very many excellent, competent, industrious, uh, hardworking, and smart black farmers, but they're not going to end up with the land. The land is going to go to political cronies. And what that means is the excess food production that's supporting the increased population is going to collapse. And then, yeah. of course, uh, there is going to be the uh, Rwanda-style uh, starvations, and there's going to be all of these horrible footage, and it will be a terrible, terrible event and affair. And the Marxists will not be blamed, the ANC will not be blamed, the economic freedom fighters will not be blamed. Of course, it will be white people's fault in some manner, in some way. And then what's going to happen is, um, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of food aid are going to be pumped in, which is going to be corrupting uh, the, the uh, governments in Africa, as it has corrupted governments around the world who are recipients of these kinds of aids. And then, of course, uh, because there's going to be starvation and increased corruption, then the blacks are all going to try and make it to Europe. And this is uh, a, a potential catastrophe of, of literally world-changing proportions. And I, I do not feel at all hyperbolic when I make that kind of statement, Ernst, that we need to put pressure on the government in South Africa to stop these, this crazy goal of this land theft, of this open uh, racist land theft against whites, because it is the beginning. I mean, obviously, it's a catastrophe for the country as a whole, but it is the beginning of a domino that has almost infinite repercussions. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I should add, you've sort of outlined a hypothetical process that could play out. And of course, I'm really hoping that that would not happen. But if that happens, one thing that we can add, you said that they would blame white people, which is probably what will happen. But they will, I can, we can predict now that they will blame America. Uh, that's what typically comes out. That's what we, what, we, what we saw in Zimbabwe. Eventually, after almost all the whites left, they turned around and they said, well, it's all America's fault. So they would blame the West. Um, what was the, that's, uh, just out of curiosity, what was the logical canyon leap, the evil can evil jump of, of reasoning that, that makes America to blame for Mugabe? Yeah, it, were, it was a conspiracy theory. So they would say that the CIA and the FBI are behind this and they've got this whole policy to destroy uh, all these African countries. Um, so, so there would be some... That's oh, what to just, like discredit black leadership and it's a strong, independent black country. It must be destroyed so it doesn't serve as an example. Okay, I understand. I understand. Yeah, yeah. So I don't agree, but I understand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and I mean, we can predict now that that would be the case, un unfortunately. Um, so, yes, and I think um, I think it's very important to to speak out about this and, and to raise awareness. And to th there are people who are willing to hear within our government, uh, or at least within our country, um, and I think it's very important that, that we put pressure on this uh, because if we if we simply let this slide, it it will it it could have uh, major consequences. But maybe I should add to that because we are we are accused by the South African government of lying to the international community, and we're actually just quoting their own figures uh, all the time. Um, and so, for example, they would say we are lying when we say that uh, land reform is not working, uh, and they would say that we are. They've got all these conspiracy theories, again, almost as you described it now. So they would say that we've got this sort of an agenda to say that black people cannot farm. And we've never said that. But what we have seen, according to our own government's data, is there where farms were taken from white people and given to black people, according to the Department of Land Reform in South Africa, more than 90% of those farms have failed. Um, they either become subsistence farms or they become squatter camps. And I've recently spoken with a historian who's very much involved with these land claims from a historical perspective. And I asked him about this figure. I said, is it really true that less than 10% of these farms are successful? And he sort of laughed and he said, no, it's not true. The answer is 1%. Yeah. Um, so he said about 1% of these farms are successful. And by that, I'm not saying black people cannot farm. The problem is, the overarching problem in South Africa is the point that, that we've made in this interview is, the problem of, of um, let's call it cultural relativism, or, or let's use that term, the idea that if there's not equality of outcome, the only possible explanation thereof could be or is that there's oppression. Um, so the, the notion is all people are the same, all cultures are the same, all everyone is equal, and whenever that, uh, those people are not able to explain why Ethiopia is poor, because Ethiopia was never colonized by anyone. But the argument in South Africa is if you are black and you are poor, it's because, it's because white people stole something from you. Um, and I think that's part of the problem. And the result of this cultural relativism ideology or this notion that if there's not equality of outcome, it's because of oppression, is that people are not taught to take responsibility for themselves. So in South Africa, um, I know this is, these arguments have been made in Europe, in the US as well, and I've read Dinesh D'Souza as the end of racism. But just to give you context in South Africa, White people, again, according to government data, we're not making this up. So we, they'll probably accuse us of lying and then they'll, they'll notice that it's their own data that we're quoting. So let me say that up front, is that the average white child in South Africa, 90% of white children grow up with both their parents. In, uh, among the black community in South Africa, it's about 30%. 
And that's just one measure. Now, we know there's been many studies which said that your chances of being successful is much higher if you grow up with both your parents. Um, and, and there are many other issue, problems that we can look at, school dropout rates, we can look at crime and, and, and so forth. And, and those issues are not looked at. Also, I said earlier that 80% of the schools in this country are dysfunctional. And it's not schools that are mostly attended by white people. It's almost all of those schools are schools that are mostly attended by black people. And again, I'm not making this up. I'm quoting government data. I'm quoting Statistics South Africa, who have said that. And, and they've actually measured that. They said, for example, within black schools as opposed to white schools, in other words, schools mostly attended by black people as opposed to schools mostly attended by white people, in the black schools, the average teaching time per day is three and a half hours. In the white schools, it's about seven hours, or I think six and a half hours. Um, so there's a massive difference. But you wouldn't find the South African government speaking out about this, because if they do, they would have to acknowledge that part of the solution would be to fix your own community. And if they, if they, have, if they say this, then they have to acknowledge that they have to turn down on, on this racist rhetoric and blaming white people for everything. So I think that's the overarching problem in South Africa, which we experience now uh, uh, in a very um, personal way. But I, I can also comment that we are very concerned about what we are seeing in the US and in Europe, where people are sort of playing or toying with the same type of, of narrative. And it's been tried in South Africa, and it, the results hasn't been good. Well, and I've talked on this show before about um, IQ bell curve differences between ethnicities. But even if we put all of that aside, and we say uh, there's no differences in any of these forums, we can easily see, to go back to the example of the uh, communist takeover of farms in Ukraine, how is it possible, because this is the same ethnic group, that it went from the breadbasket of Europe. I mean, the, the, one of the most productive areas of farming in the world was Ukraine before the communist takeover. And then they went from incredibly productive farms to millions and millions of people literally starving to death amidst the richest soil, uh, some of the richest soil in the world. That's because the economic system transferred the land from productive use to political use, which means to disuse. And so even if we cast aside any of the bell curve differences and so on, we can see that the communism is, even if, if it replaced uh, whites with whites or, or East Asians with East Asians, it doesn't matter because once you get that communist system coming in place, the means of production decay. And the productivity yep. collapses. And that, to me, is the major issue. And I've, I've talked about it in this. The, the, it's funny because in South Africa, then, the illegitimacy rate or the, the single mother rate for blacks actually is lower than it is in many places in the United States. I did a show recently with the Reverend Jesse Lee Peterson where we talked about 77% illegitimacy in certain areas of the black community in the United States. And in the past... Before the welfare state, uh, before this uh, toxicity of victimhood and, and race blaming and race baiting and so on, the black family was stronger than the white family. And the frustrating thing is the, the amount of black potential across the world is so inhibited by the central planning and the socialism and this, this Marxism. In the post-Second World War period in America, you had a massive inflow of blacks into the middle class, an incredible unleashing of black opportunity, which then got forestalled and undermined by the welfare state, by, you know, terrible government education, white variety. There's so much that we can do to have things be better, but that does involve personal responsibility. It does involve diminishing state control over various ethnicities. It does require, I hope at some point, we, we let go of this fantasy of moving these big giant levers to make things better and worse between ethnicities and let freedom reign. But um, uh, there, there's a, way, a ways to go to get there. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think maybe to put it in different terms, I, I don't think it's a 
hardware problem as much as it is a software problem. In other words, it, it's we shouldn't try to look at this problem in terms of race. We should look at it in terms of what people are thinking. Uh, that's why I'm saying it's more a software problem than anything else. It's an ideological problem. Um, and that's why these farms are, are failing, these farms that are being redistributed. It's not because white people can be farmers and black people cannot be farmers. Um, I don't think anyone is trying to say that. Um, it's about it's about a, an ideology or, or a, a worldview and, and that is something that's very concerning in South Africa, as I've said, that, that there's this worldview that's very aggressively pursued, and, and unfortunately, I have to add, by, by many within our media as well, that, um, as I said, everything that is wrong with you, everything that every, every uncomfort that you experience is because it's someone else's fault. And if that's your worldview, you cannot, it's very difficult for you to take responsibility because when you get this farm and something happens, something doesn't go right or according to plan, your immediate, your knee-jerk re, uh, reaction would be to say, well, who can I blame for this? And that's why I'm saying that this is an ideology that we really need to break. I would certainly like to push the ideology argument as far as humanly possible. We've got a long way to go there before we're uncovering any potential hardware issues. But this is the incredible thing, too. And I was thinking about this uh, just as in terms of I was growing up. I admired people who were successful. I admired people who were entrepreneurial. And I knew everybody from different races who had these particular abilities and potentials and had these very interesting and powerful lives of, of, of success, of, of providing value in a free market, of being entrepreneurial. And I can't honestly imagine, Ernest, what it must be like to have drilled into you by a lot of hate mongers of, of every race, that the successful people are evil, that the successful people are exploiters, that those who are really good at managing Earth's scarce resources are uh, thieves and parasites and colonists and, and uh, oppressors and racists and so on. Because what that would mean, of course, is that, let's say that I believe that about the Boers, and then I come into possession of a Boer farm, well, I can't take the Boer as my model of how to do things. Because they're evil and they're racist and they're nasty and they're exploiters and they're colonists. So you won't even put into practice what the Boers do so successfully because you're so full of hatred for the entire uh, ethnicity. And that guarantees, in a sense, um, not being able to succeed in any kind of free market or voluntary environment. And that is, I think, one of the most foundational poisons and the way in which potential uh, in every race, gender and ethnicity uh, is so stymied by filling people so much with the hatred of the successful that they can't even do what successful do people do to become successful. Yeah, uh, maybe I can I can answer that with a, a short story or a, a reference to uh, Margaret Thatcher's last day in the House of Commons. There's that well-known case where someone I assume from the Labour Party stood up and said, well, yes, you claim that you've achieved all of this, but one thing you cannot deny is that the gap between uh, rich and poor became bigger during your term of office. And then she responded and said, that might be true, but poor people got richer. And then she said, um, you would rather have the poor be poorer, provided that the rich is less rich. And and I want to paraphrase, paraphrase that in, in the South African context. And, and I think there's so much racism within our ruling party that I would like to believe that many of them know that these policies don't work. Well, they have to know it because their own figures indicate such. So they would rather have white people, the, the, the gratification they get from hurting white people is bigger than the need to uplift black people. So they would rather have white people be, or black people be poorer, provided that white people are less rich. Uh, that's the situation in South Africa. And some are honest enough to say, yes, <laughs> there, there are people who would say, yes, that's true. 
we don't care if we lose our jobs. Um, some people who, who are very influential in, in South Africa would say those type of things. We don't care if people lose their jobs as long as we get the land back, as long as we chase the white people off. And we, if we lose our jobs in the process, that's fine. So some are honest enough to say that, but I think it's an overarching problem is it's, it's, it's certainly a racist undertone to what's happening in South Africa. And listen, I mean, as, as you know, uh, races and ethnicities, we are not separated by land bridges, by oceans, by evolution. Uh, we are all living together and we really, really have to work very hard to find a way to get along because the uh, alternative is is uh, rivers of blood, of course, as the phrase used to go. Now, another aspect that, of course, has been talked about a lot um, in online media, not so much, of course, in the mainstream, in mainstream media, is the issue of the farm murders and uh, the brutality, the horror, uh, the psychotic, torturing brutality of these situations. Nothing to do with theft, nothing to do with property, nothing to do with uh, wanting the land back. This is, you know, psychotic, almost cult-like slaughters and tortures and rapes and, and abuses of uh, largely white, although sometimes uh, black farm workers. I wonder if you could tell people what's been going on what you think the motivations are, and, and maybe just a couple of instances so people can get a sense of, of the, the horrors that, that are there for, for the Boer farmers in general. Yeah, thank you. This is very, very important. Um, I've actually written a book about this. It's going to be published soon. The book is called Kill the Boer, and, or the Boer. And the reason why that's the title of the book is because that's a very well-known song in South Africa, Kill the Boer, Kill the Farmer. So, so this, the farm murder phenomenon is... It gets quite complex because there are a lot of variables that play a role, but mainly or, or generally the problem is that farmers are being attacked and killed and tortured in complete disproportionate numbers, in very alarming numbers. So this is one of the other things that the South African government recently said that Afroforum is lying about farm murders, while what they did not know is the figures we were quoting, again, were the South African government's own figures. So according to their own figures, over the last 18 years, the average in South Africa was that about two, almost two farm murders occurred every week in South Africa uh, over a period of 18 years, and almost two farm attacks occurred per day in South Africa. And I'm sorry, just, just to clarify that, so two farm murders, does that mean two murders of farm people as a whole or two individual farmers murdered? It, it, it means... Uh, People who comply, that this is why it becomes a bit complex. It means people who comply with the defini definition of a farm murder. So you don't, I can be the victim of a farm murder despite the fact that I don't live on a farm. So I can visit someone on a farm and I can be attacked there and killed and that would make me the victim of a farm murder. So that means that, that people, a farm murder is basically someone who, get, who is murdered during a farm attack. And a farm attack, there's a particular definition for that. It basically means people coming from outside, attacking the farm, uh, or attacking the people who live there, committing one of a variety of crimes, including murder, attempted murder, assault, uh, rape, uh, arson, and so forth. So if someone is murdered during, an, during one of these attacks, it's a farm murder. So and quite often, there no theft is involved. Wallets are left behind, cell phones are left behind, other valuables, jewelry, and so on. These are ideological or racial or hate crime murders, uh, I think, uh, obviously, with the Marxist agenda of destroying the um, controllers of the means of production. Yeah, what we could determine in the year 2016, uh, or that financial year at least, um, about 14% of the people who were murdered during farm attacks were tortured. Uh, uh, and 
some of the, the tortures are horrible. I've written a chapter in, in the book that's coming out uh, about the brutality of farm murders. And it's it sounds like ISIS executions if you read some of those stories. I, ca I can give you a few examples. Yes, please do. Let me give you the, the best known example is um, the case of Wilhelmine Potgieter. Now, that was a little girl. She was two, uh, two years old or three years old, according to some reports. So I think it was a Sunday afternoon. She and her father and mother came home to the farm. And once they got out of the vehicle, Ati Potriter, her father, he was about 40 years old, he was attacked. And there was a big struggle, and they were basically struggling all around the house. And eventually, he was stabbed 151 times with a knife, with a garden fork, and a what we call a panga, which is a machete. He was stabbed 151 times. And based on the, the, the investigations of the crime scene, scene, the little girl stood next to this Wilhelmine Potriter, two, three-year-old little girl, stood next to her father as this happened. And her footsteps, uh, were, were, her feet were soaked in her father's blood. So she literally stood in his blood and you could see her, her little uh, footprints uh, across the, the yard. After they murdered him, they took her, they, um, they shot her uh, through the head, and they threw her in a box in, in the storage room. Then Vilna Potgieter, after having witnessed her, hus her husband being stabbed 151 times, and they left him with the garden fork through his neck, and after witnessing a three-year-old little girl being shot to, uh, to, uh, shot dead, she was then dragged into the house and she was made to kneel and they, they sh uh, shot her executioner style through the head. They then went and they took the little girl, Wilhelmine, and they threw her dead body over her mother's uh, de dead body. Then they took 3,000 rand, and, uh, or, which is about how much? A few hundred dollars they took. And they, they made a sign, the attackers, in, in uh, Sepedi, which if you translate it, it means we killed them and we are coming back. And they put it up on the, the, the front gate of the farm. And eventually those people, they were caught and they were trialed and they were found guilty of murder. And then the, the finding was that their motive was to steal. They went there because they wanted to steal money. That's what was said in court. And there are many such cases. There was a person called uh, Knowledge Polis Mandlazi who was found guilty of murdering five white farmers or committing five farm murders, and he said in court, my hateful white people made me do it. And he said for him, killing white people is like going to work. Um, and um, he was found guilty, and he was laughing about it during the court proceedings. There was another case, a man called Ntutuko Chweni, who murdered a white farmer in the Free State. Um, he testified under oath that he didn't have any beef or any problem with that farmer in particular, the reason why he killed him was because he happened to be a white farmer at the wrong place at the wrong time. And he said that he was influenced by the ANC's repeated singing of kill the Boer, kill the farmer. So he, he testified under oath that the singing of songs such as kill the Boer, kill the farmer led him to murder a white farmer. And, and there are many cases of there was a farmer, a farmer called uh, Roger van Parijs uh, just the other day. He, had, he was attacked on his farm and they had him kneel and they shoved the samurai thawed, sword down his throat. Uh, there were people who've been stuck in deep freezes. Uh, there's been people who were a few cases. One of them is Johan uh, Stradom, uh, Skuman, rather. He was attacked on his farm. He was beaten with a blunt object over the head. He was then tied behind his pickup truck by his feet while he was still alive. And then they drove with him. They dragged him around the, the dirt roads on the farm for a few kilometers. And eventually died when his organs started bursting as a result of this. And he's not the only one with whom that happened. So I can really keep going. There's, there's the most atrocious stories about Do how I remember, these people... I, I think I remember reading, uh, Ernst, about a boy who was boiled in, in um, 
a bathtub, uh, just just astonishing levels of, of I mean, pre-medieval barbaric cruelty. Yeah, let me tell you what happened in that case. It happened uh, in Gauteng province, just south of Johannesburg, on a small holding. So it was a mom, a dad, and a 12-year-old boy. Um, and they had the three of them locked in different, they had them in different rooms. Um, and then they, I can't remember the exact sequence. I'm pretty sure that the first thing they did was they raped uh, the mother. Then they uh, they shot the mother. I can't remember if they killed the, the father or the mother first, but they shot them dead. Um, first the one and then the other. And then they filled the bathtub with boiling water and they tied the little boy, they tied his hands behind his back and they threw him head first or face down into the boiling water. And um, he drowned from suffocating within that boiling water and his, 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 the in, inside of his body was, was burnt from the boiling water. And um, it's horrible. It's so horrible if you read what happened there and what the attackers said because they were caught and they laughed about it in court. Um, they laughed about what they did. And they, they testified how they could hear him crying as they threw him in the boiling water. It's, it's horrible. It's something that you don't even want to imagine. But that happened just a few kilometers from where I'm sitting speaking to you right now. And that's not the only case. Uh, that they were actually, uh, let's make it more personal. Um, as I said, I, I grew up on a farm. And a, a lady who worked on our farm uh, uh, as a, a secretary, her parents... I have to remember if it's her parents or her grandparents. I think it was her, it was her parents were, were killed like that. And her father was also uh, boiled to death in that same way. I think what happened to him, if I recall, was they had a, a shower nozzle. with the They turned it up, all the boiling water, and they stuck it down his throat. And eventually he was killed as a result of that. There was a, another lady who um, was, her husband was dead already. Um, uh, prior to the attack, she was tied to the shower uh, in a, in the house, and the, she was then whipped um, by like a string that had objects fastened to it. She was whipped with that, and um, they then went to the ashes. They knew that her husband was dead. They they took the urn with her husband's ashes, and they threw it over her as she as they were whipping her. And they said to her um, that we know you're alone, and there's no one coming to save you. And as I said, I can keep going with these stories. It's the most atrocious stories imaginable. But the worst part of it is that the South African government is still in denial about this problem. If you ask them, then they would say, yes, it's a problem. We need to do something. If you ask them, are we going to prioritize this? Are we going to have some sort of a government strategy to address this? Are you going to stop singing, shoot the boer or kill the farmers or songs like that? They would say, no, farmers aren't special. That's, that's the typical response we get from the South African government. Yeah, I mean, and, and this... This is all occurring after the Truth and Reconciliation Committees. This is all occurring after whites, to some degree, and certainly under international pressure, gave up uh, political power. And this is occurring, as you point out, after many decades of hundreds of thousands of land reconciliation, land restitution, uh, that this kind of attempts to reconcile the wrongs of history have not diminished, but may have even provoked the brutality through the appearance of weakness and I genuinely, I mean, it's absolutely appalling to hear these stories. And I honestly cannot believe that human beings are born with any of this kind of hatred for other races, for other ethnicities. It must be something that is drip-fed like a venom into the hearts and minds of people. We, we cannot possibly be born with this kind of antipathy. Yeah, I agree. And I think, as I've said, it's, it's a very complex phenomenon. And I think Part of the reason why this is happening is I think there's a there's, there's a bunch of different factors that come together in this. And I think the 
probably, I would say, two, at least two very important parts of the problem is that there's a, a culture of violence in South Africa. Um, uh, South Africa is a very violent country. And unfortunately, we have to say that that culture of violence was very much um, accelerated by the ruling party when they were still struggling for power in South Africa. Uh, what happened in the 1980s in the black townships and so forth. And, and you mean uh, with uh, Winnie Mandela and the necklacing and, and this kind of brutality? I wonder if you can tell people a little bit about that for those who don't know. Yeah, well, I think the best way to answer that is to, to say there's a documentary film about this called Tainted Heroes. Um, the trailer is on YouTube. I think someone uploaded the entire film to YouTube as well, which is about that. It's about what the ANC did to come to power in South Africa. And it's atrocious. Um, um, I, say, I think I mentioned earlier that they, they were funded by the Soviet Union so the ANC were funded by the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union then felt at one stage that the ANC is not really doing enough. They're not really effective enough in terms of their struggle for power in South Africa. So they sent them to Vietnam in 1979 to study from Ho Chi Minh and Vong Nguyen and Jap um, about how, to, how they succeeded against the Americans. Um, and they were taught what is known as a people's war strategy. So this is all in that documentary, Tainted Heroes. And the people's war strategy was actually developed by Mao Zedong. And the essence of that is that people don't matter. Uh, even innocent people, if they die as a result of your struggle, that has, that's the case. So what happened then, the ANC came back, um, and they were very much marginalized by then. And then they started this people's war in which uh, rival, black rival organizations, such as the Black Consciousness Movement, uh, the Inkata Movement, uh, Azapu, and so forth, were aggressively attacked. And that's why when people think about violence in apartheid, it's not white and black people killing each other. It's violence within the black townships. It's black people necklacing other black people. And that's as a result of this, what I've explained to you now. Um, so there and was a for those who don't know is when you put a tire around someone's neck, you fill it with gasoline and you set it on fire to basically burn their face from their skull. Yeah. And so what, what would happen then is while this person is, is burning, there would be a, a mob around this person dancing, and then they would throw rocks at that person and they would kick that person and, and, and so forth. So it's, it's the most horrible way to die imaginable. And, and that happened more than 500 people were killed by way of necklacing uh, in the decade before apartheid ended. And more than 700 people were burned to death using other methods. But I think the worst part is that although the ANC denies it today, it's, it's written down. It's, uh, there are written records of it where ANC leaders were encouraging people to do this. And Winnie Mandela is the most well-known case where she said, with our necklaces and with our matches, we will liberate this country. Uh, even Thabo Mbeki, former president Thabo Mbeki, people don't know this. He even said that uh, he, he he said that he doesn't condone the use of the necklace as a method of murder, but he refuses to uh, condemn those who use it uh, or who carry it out. We've had uh, Chris Harney, who was a very known, is a very uh, well-known icon in South Africa, struggle icon, who encouraged this. We had Alfred Nzor, who was secretary general of the ANC at the time, uh, who actively encouraged this. So there were many such cases. Although today the so-called general knowledge is that the ANC was actually opposed to this. But if you really look at what happened, they actively encouraged it. Well, and, and Mandela was also filmed singing the Kill the Boer song. Yes. And yeah, uh, yeah. The, this is, you know, the, 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 the advocation of genocide with the saintliness. You know, the Rainbow Nation seems to have quite an excess of red, just in terms of communism and of blood. And something which I'd like you to comment on if you could, and it, it struck me looking at, South African crime statistics, and it reminds me significantly of prior to the Bolshevik takeover in Russia in 1917, the Tsar had, there were maybe 
a couple of dozen political prisoners, people who were imprisoned for their political beliefs. After, of course, Lenin and then certainly after Stalin, it, it swelled to hundreds of thousands and finally millions that the revolution that was supposed to uh, oppose some sort of injustice in, ended up enacting many times, many thousands of times, the injustice that it claimed to oppose. And looking at the crime statistics, both pre- and post-apartheid, you know, this is, again, to, to, I hate to have to make this point. This is no defense of apartheid. But if you were a black and wanted to, say, not be raped or, or, or murdered or stolen from, you're statistically would be much better off pre-apartheid than post-apartheid. I mean, the number of blacks who've been murdered and raped uh, post-apartheid is, is, is shocking. Yes, uh, I don't have that exact statistics with me, but I can tell you a number that I've seen very recently is um, deaths in, in uh, incarceration in prisons. So we frequently hear that the, the apartheid system was very evil because um, so many people died in prison. And if I recall, it was something like 74 people who died in, in prison during the incarceration. Um, and I took it up with some former police officers who had de information about this. And they said, yes, the majority of them died as a result of, of um, uh, suicide. In South Africa, in one year, there's more than 300 people dying in prisons in South Africa uh, currently. So, so we, we would hear, that's the irony, we would hear that the, the previous, the, the, the apartheid government was evil because 70 people died in prisons. But currently there's over 300 per year uh, dying in prison. So, so, I mean, that's just one measure. So we can look at all these different measures. But South Africa, as I said, is a very violent country. There's, in the last financial year, there were about 19,000 murders in South Africa. Uh, which is a ratio, uh, if you work it out, per 100,000, it's 34 people per 100,000. In the U.S., I think the number is around five or four per 100,000. Um, in the U.K., it's one per 100,000. But in South Africa, it's 34. Well, it's shocking to think, of course, when you, when you point out the deaths in prison, that in one year post-apartheid, it's, what, more than four times the number of people die in prison than the entire multi-decade history of, of apartheid. And this is the complexity we don't want to say, let's go back to apartheid. That was a racist and unjust and segregationist system. Of course, again, for me, the libertarian ideal is, is small to no government, but we do still have to look at the numbers. And, you know, I dare say to, to use the phrase Black Lives Matter, they do, of course. And the increase in violence, the increase in rapes, the increase uh, in, in thefts uh, is horrendous for the black community. And it is, of course, horrendous for the white community uh, who live in fear on their farms and who live as caged animals in the cities behind barbed wire, unable to leave, having to take different routes to drop their kids off at work, having to phone security guards to re-enter the house, living in fear every night. Uh, this is a, a wretched existence uh, flamed and fueled by, I think, this Marxist hostility to any successful group. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it's horrible. And if you compare, for example, the South African police service to the skyrocketing of private security in South Africa. So recently, in the last few years, they, they seem to have been, although it's worsening now again, they seem to have been, it almost appeared as if violent crime was coming under control. And then the police were very proud of that. But what they did not say, what they didn't acknowledge was the skyrocketing of private security in South Africa. Private security is a massive industry in South Africa. It's far but bigger now, than the police force, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's um, I'll get the exact numbers, but uh, it's it's exponentially more. Um, um, I think there are somewhere upwards of half a million private security guards in South Africa. I can get the exact number and I'll get the exact numbers of um, 
the um, prison figures that I mentioned. I'll maybe put it up on Twitter after we publish this interview if, if people are interested. And um, I'll get the numbers of the private security industry as well in comparison to the South African police. Um, and that, that's a new thing. It, it wasn't like that before. But so, so if there seems to be, as we've had a few years ago, there seemed to be, it looked almost as if violent crime was coming under control. But the main reason, therefore, was the massive increase in, in private security. And also, maybe I can add to that, there's literally billions of rands in South Africa that our own government is spending on private security to protect them. So our own state president is, is, is there's a whole private security industry almost that's that's uh, protecting the South African government and politicians. While you would think that they should trust their own police force to do that, but um, well, this goes back to the earlier question about uh, nationalisation of land and so on. You can, of course, hire private security to defend you against private criminals, but there's no private security force in the world that I know of that can defend you against public predation by the state. Yeah, and that's exactly the point. And that's where I think people need to understand the concept of a monopoly of, uh, on violence. And that's that's what governments have. Government Governments have a monopoly on violence. So, so there's no point in government saying we're going to take your land without violence, because what they're actually saying is we're going to take your land and you are not going to resist. And that doesn't make sense. Yeah, I mean, if the woman doesn't resist, it's still rape. So listen, I appreciate your time. Let's finish, if, you, if we can, with now that we've thoroughly depressed people and hopefully not strip them of their will to live. Let's give people who care about this and listen out there, you're listening to this, you're watching this, you need to care about this. Simple human compassion for the continued success of South Africa would be part of it. But even if that's not enough of an overriding motive for you, uh, the fact that this is whatever disasters that may occur in South Africa are in no way, shape or form going to be contained within South Africa. Uh, this is a, even if it's just your own selfish uh, desire to not have problems spill over, uh, that may be something for it. So what can people do who at the moment are feeling kind of helpless and perhaps apathetic and dejected about the possibilities? What specifically, let, let's talk about uh, practical steps that people can take to help. Please, thank you. And uh, that's very important. And as, I've, as we've said, uh, discussed in this interview, the South African government is very sensitive about its, its reputation abroad. And I have to be honest, um, I might have sound very pessimistic during this interview, but I don't think all is lost. I, I really think we have the capacity or the potential to, to swing this thing around. There's already been a, a significant backlash, and we can already see the South African government trying to sort of backpedal on, on this or try to explain themselves uh, in a much uh, more comprehensive way than they've done before. So I think what we will be doing, I'll say what we plan to do as AfriForum and then what people can do. So what we will be doing now is we will very soon embark on an international uh, tour or campaign. We will be sending people to Australia, we will go to Europe, and we will I will go to the US uh, in May um, to, to talk to as many people as I can about this. Um, and we've, we have a website, uh, expropriation.co.za, uh, where there's a, a memorandum that people can sign in which they can indicate if they are South African or not. So they can go to this website and just sign the form and say, I disagree with what's happening in South Africa. And why this is important is because it strengthens our mandate to say we're not. it's not simply an organization talking. There are hundreds of thousands or millions of people who have a very serious problem about what's happening or what could happen in South Africa. Can you just repeat so that again for the, the website for the people listening? And we'll put the links to this below just to make sure people get it. It's expro just the term expropriation, uh, not .com, uh, .co, .za. Uh, uh, so that's the, the, the term we use in South Africa. And I think another thing that people can do that really is beneficial to us, it's, it's very easy, is actually just to talk about this. 
to talk about this online, to comment on pages, to comment on Twitter, to comment on Facebook, uh, on, on in uh, comment uh, sections on websites, to really talk about this issue because in, in that way we can we can raise the bar in terms of getting the message out. And for example, as I said, I will be going to the US soon, so I'm hoping to speak to a lot of people while I'm there. Um, so people can uh, comment on this, as I've said, but they can also write to their own governments. Uh, we don't we don't believe that it's a practical solution to expect of other governments, you know, to fly in with jets into South Africa and, you know, force the South African government to stop this. Of course, that's, that's uh, unrealistic. But simply speaking out the, about this, we've seen the massive response when the, the Australian Minister of Home Affairs spoke out about this. It was a massive response in South Africa. It was the, the dominating story in the news for a week. Um, so if we can get more people, especially people within the media, people who have big audiences such as yourself and others, uh, people, especially if they were, if they are connected to the to, to governments, to simply come out into, into the public and say, we are very concerned about what is happening in South Africa. And I think lastly, what I can say is to to people who are investing in South Africa or who want to invest in South Africa, we are not calling for disinvestment into, into South Africa, but what we are, what we do intend to do is to warn investors, to say to them, your, your investment might not be as safe as you think. So instead of calling on people to disinvest, we would rather encourage people who wish to invest in South Africa to make their voices heard, to say, listen, I want to invest in your country, but I'm not going to invest in your country if the right to own private property is not respected, because that's what this whole thing is about. It's about changing uh, Section 25 of the South African Constitution, which is the right to own private property. That's what this entire debate is about in South Africa. And uh, property is life, literally life for millions and millions of people, uh, hundreds of millions around the world. Property is the capacity to survive, whether it's the property you own or it's the property that other people own, which allow them to be productive with the means of production. So, yeah, and I, I really feel this is, this is a battle to some degree of, of just good versus evil. There are, of course, those who wish to tell us that all disparities in group outcomes are the result of white racism, and those people are racist, and those people are immoral, and those people are fomenting massive conflict around the world. There are other explanations, whether they're cultural, whether they're ideological, whether they're biological, I don't know. But we do need to explore hypotheses or conjectures other than universal evil white racism, which I have never found to be the case. Uh, there are racists uh, in, in every group, but the idea that it's only concentrated in one ethnic group is a racist theory itself. We need to keep talking and we need to find ways to get along and not to just demonize any particular group in society that has never led to a good outcome ever in human history, quite the opposite. So yeah, just wanted to remind people, it's afroforum.co.za, twitter.com forward slash Ernst Rotes, R-O-E-T-S. I really, really appreciate the in-depth time that you were able to spend today because it is a very complex issue. It does not lend itself well to sound bites. And I really appreciate the very clear explanations you've provided us. Thank you. And I really appreciate having this platform. And thank you for what you are doing also to raise awareness about this problem.